Mr. President, Your Excellency, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to tonight's lecture. We are pleased to have been able to arrange tonight's lecture in collaboration with the Romanian Embassy here in London and also with the generous support of the Romanian Cultural Institute. And this lecture is part of a series run by the European Institute here at the LSC uh, in conjunction with APCO Worldwide. This important series brings together a number of leading political and academic figures to discuss the current and future agenda for Europe. Tonight's lecture has been coordinated by our new research unit here at the school, which focuses on the wider region with the title of Lisi Research on Southeast Europe. I would like to thank my colleagues in the research unit for coordinating tonight's event, and in particular my colleague Ivan Kovanovic, our administrator. Our speaker tonight, of course, uh, is Traian Pachescu, uh, the current president of Romania. He was elected president in 2004 and is now well into his second term. He has previously been mayor of Bucharest and also minister of transport. In his early career before entering politics, he served as a captain in the Merchant Navy and uh, we'd just been talking before we came, uh, he's emphasized this has give him, given him quite a pragmatic approach to some of the political uh, issues. The topic of his talk tonight is the Romania, Romanian experience of welfare policy, highly topical in the European context in which we discuss uh, the role of the state, the role of social solidarity in a context of recession, in a context of seeking further growth. After the President has spoken, we're very pleased to welcome Professor Vladimir uh, Tismignano uh, from the University of Maryland. Uh, he will say a few words as uh, discussant, and then we'll be able to open it up to uh, questions and answers from you, the audience. We're on a tight time schedule, so I will say very little more. Uh, simply to indicate, as you may have already understood, uh, we've invited the President to uh, speak in Romanian, and then there will be a translation available uh, as to what the uh, of the President's speech, and then we will revert to English for the questions and answers. So, as time is short, uh, can you please join me in giving a very warm LSE welcome to the President of Romania, President uh, Bacescu. Honestly speaking, I avoid to use uh, English language in my speech simply because I don't like to see tomorrow in our, in Romanian newspapers, criticism about my poor English language. <laughs> <laughs> For this reason, I will transfer this mission to a good uh, uh, translator from Romanian to English language. Thank you for your understanding, but it's difficult to be in London and to use English language. Este o onoare să deschid seria conferințelor Ghiță Ionescu. Pentru noi românii, profesorul Ionescu a fost un reper major al exilului intelectual din perioada în care România se afla sub dominația unei dictaturi totalitare. Vă mulțumesc pentru invitația de a mă adresa dumneavoastră aici, într-o instituție dintre cele mai prestigioase în domeniul științelor sociale. La London School of Economics au studiat, o studiază numeroși studenți români într-un mediu cu adevărat internațional și competitiv. Profesorul Ionescu a descris regimuri precum acela pe care țara mea l-a cunoscut vreme de 45 de ani dintr-o perspectivă teoretică. Eu doresc să vă vorbesc acum dintr-o perspectivă practică. Politica în forma în care era 
aceasta înțeleasă pe atunci, era văzută mai puțin ca un set de argumente ori de principii, cât o sumă de promisiuni. Comunismul le făgăduia oamenilor că vor fi fericiți. Ideologii Partidului Unic promiteau o societate fără inegalitate, fără represiune, fără conflicte, fără exploatare și fără crize de sistem. În realitate, totul s-a transformat într-un eșec de proporții istorice. Vedem cu toții în jurul nostru evidența. Inegalitățile se adânciseră. Represiunea ajunsese la proporții de masă. Conflictele au fost suprimate doar în măsura în care au fost suprimați și actorii acestora. Exploatarea cetățenilor era asumată chiar de stat în numele unei libertăți de tip nou. Sistemul era într-o criză permanentă. Incapabil să elimine statul așa cum își propusese, comunismul s-a mulțumit să-l șubrezească. A eliminat respectul pentru ordinea de drept în numele unei justiții partizane. A erodat legitimitatea instituțiilor publice și a forțat o falsă modernizare ale cărei efecte nefaste le contabilizăm chiar și astăzi. Intrarea în postcomunism nu a însemnat și abandonarea integrală a acestei concepții despre politică. Mulți oameni așteptau un nou miracol care să vină din partea statului. Speranțele că statul trebuie să ne asigure fericirea i-au fost substituite gradual ideea că statul trebuie să garanteze bunăstarea fiecăruia și a tuturor. Convingerea mea este că un om politic nu trebuie să cultive clișeele și nici să se lase sedus de spiritul utopiei. Societățile sunt alcătuite din indivizi care trebuie să fie responsabili pentru propria lor soartă. Această constatare ne duce la alta, legată de principalul rol al statului, care este acela de a asigura supremația legii. Statul trebuie să fie un arbitru corect și este dator să asigure protecția cetățenilor săi. Criza economică pe care o traversăm ne-a făcut să descoperim însă că viețile și libertățile multor oameni sunt constrânse de un gen de stat cu totul diferit. Un stat intervenționist care consumă resurse enorme, care este bazat pe o birocrație extinsă. Las specialiștilor în filozofie politică sarcina de a dezbate meritele și defectele diferitelor forme de stat capitalist. Eu mă mulțumesc doar să arăt acum către o stare de fapt pe care o percepem cu toții. Criza mondială ne-a demonstrat cât de vulnerabile sunt statele care intervin în exces în mersul pieței libere, inclusiv în piața forței de muncă, dar și în protecția socială, de multe ori nejustificat de extinsă. Un mare profesor al școlii dumneavoastră, Friedrich Haig, declara că sistemul proprietății private este cea mai importantă garanție a libertății, nu doar pentru cei care au avere, cât și pentru aceia care nu o au. Este o modă recent să acuzăm sistemul capitalist de toate relele crizei. Capitalismul este desigur perfectibil, însă mă întreb care ar fi fost soarta țărilor din estul Europei, dacă nu cumva a continentului nostru, dacă actuala criză economică ar fi lovit economii de comandă, inflexibile și centralizate. Situația actuală este mai serioasă decât ne-o sugerează un calcul pur economic. Democrația, înainte de orice, trebuie să fie sustenabilă, 
deficitele severe, cronice, un grad de îndatorare în continuă creștere și un regim punitiv al impozitării sunt incompatibile cu principiile unei ordini politice construită în jurul valorilor libertății și responsabilității individuale. Piața liberă nu este anexa statului social, ci statul social depinde de bunul mers al pieței libere. Există un permanent pericol care vine dinspre politicieni. Alocarea de beneficii unor secțiuni ale electoratului pentru a-și asigura susținerea în alegeri. Acest fapt implică o vulnerabilitate considerabilă pentru întreaga societate, pentru că instituțiile reprezentative devin instrumente ale unor grupuri în loc ca aceste instituții să lucreze în interesul public general. Spirala beneficiilor nejustificate se întreține apoi singură. Accentul pus disproporționat pe politicile bunăstării mai trebuie înțeles și într-un alt context al crizei de valori. Există tentația să ne închidem într-un cerc restrâns al consumului și beneficiilor de a susține o formă sau alta de protecționism sau de izolaționism. Însă democrațiile moderne au avut un simț al misiunii lor istorice, preferând întotdeauna pacea războiului, comerțul izolării, democrațiile au creat un spațiu de expansiune în care libertatea și drepturile individuale au devenit valori esențiale pentru milioane de oameni. La originea Uniunii Europene găsim acest impuls pacifist și generos. Membrii în acest club al democrațiilor avansate noi nu am ajuns la acest stadiu în același mod în care au ajuns partenerii noștri din Europa Occidentală. Privind din perspectiva istoriei, observăm că statele vest-europene au devenit democratice într-un interval îndelungat. De la începutul existenței lor moderne, statele occidentale au fost de regulă state de drept care aveau administrații competente și instituții legitime. Acestea au asigurat respectul pentru drepturile individuale chiar și înainte de triumful egalității politice și al principiului suveranității populare. Spre deosebire de acest model, unele state din Europa Centrală și din Estul Europei, printre care și România, s-au reinventat într-un interval foarte scurt după 1989 ca democrații electorale. Pe acest fond trebuie înțeleasă direcția evoluției acestora către crearea unor instituții puternice și legitime în cadrul statului de drept. Întărirea democrației înseamnă, în acest sens, trecerea de la democrația formală procedurală la democrația consolidată. Acesta este un proces complex. Experiența României, ca și a altor state postcomuniste, arată că procesul de reformare a statului este mai lung decât ne așteptam în 1990. Apare astfel paradoxul unor aparate statale care promovează schimbări revoluționare la nivel politic, social și economic, dar care dovedesc un grad important de inerție la nivelul propriei lor funcționări, ceea ce duce la obosirea părții din societate care susține schimbările și la o scădere a credibilității instituțiilor statului. Pe acest fond prosperă populismul, o temă care l-a preocupat și pe profesorul Ghiță Ionescu. Acesta observase, alături de Ernest Gellner, că populismul este ideologia cea mai frecvent adoptată 
de conducătorii unor noi state. Dacă socialismul promitea o fericire difuză, idilică, ce urma să fie atinsă în faza împlinirii comunismului, după 1990, promisiunea făcută de noile democrații părea să fie pentru mulți doar satisfacția tangibilă a bunăstării occidentale. Această echivalare a lăsat loc frustrărilor atunci când bumul economic s-a lăsat așteptat, oricând efectele sale nu au fost resimțite de toți. Nemulțumirile au fost rapid valorificate de partidele antisistem și cele ale foștilor nomenclaturiști, care au mizat pe încurajarea etatismului și a reflexelor colectiviste moștenite din perioada precedentă. Una dintre ideile pe care acum încercăm să le impunem în România este aceea că democrația, calitatea acesteia, depinde de rolul pe care indivizii și-l asumă în mod liber și responsabil în societate. Democrația nu este regimul statului, ci acela al cetățeanului. Poate că cel mai remarcabil fapt care s-a petrecut cu rapiditate în România este consolidarea unei culturi politice democratice. Încă din secolul al XIX-lea, de la formarea statului român modern, elitele noastre politice și culturale au fost pro-occidentale. Ocupația sovietică și dominația Partidului Unic nu au putut suprima această orientare care a redevenit principalul element de consens al elitei românești încă din anul 1990. Există așadar o contribuție a orientării noastre, o continuitate care a fost ajutată de păstrarea unor legături cu vestul, dintre care cea care a atins cel mai direct marea majoritate a populației a fost contactul cu radiourile occidentale, inclusiv cu secția română a BBC. Luați aceste gânduri imperfecte ca pe o invitație la o dezbatere venită din partea unui om care își pune întrebări cu privire la sistemul de valori ce trebuie să îi susțină atitudinile. Soluțiile la provocările lumii contemporane le vom descoperi și ni le vom însuși într-un dialog angajat. Aici un rol fundamental îl are elita academică. Aceasta are rolul de a chestiona prejudecățile, de a face să evolueze mentalitățile, de a apropia culturile. Fiecare dintre dumneavoastră puteți face mai mult decât pot face toți oamenii politici. Încercați să ne înțelegeți așa cum a reușit românul Ghiță Ionescu să înțeleagă societatea și sistemul politic occidental din a doua jumătate a secolului trecut. Așa cum Europa de Est are nevoie în continuare de investiții străine, se simte și nevoia unor investiții de interes intelectual. Vă pot încuraja spunându-vă că veți găsi destulă originalitate, dar și surprinzător de multe lucruri comune. Închei cu un îndemn la încredere. Circumstanțele extraordinare în care ne găsim, nu trebuie să ne conducă nici spre dogmatism și nici spre lipsa de speranță. Un alt mare profesor al școlii dumneavoastră, Michael Okeshot, afirma că în politică navigăm pe o mare nemărginită, unde nu sunt porturi în care să te refugiezi în fața furtunii și unde nu ai unde să arunci ancora. Însă maestria omului politic este de a adapta modurile obișnuite de comportament la împrejurările ostile pentru ca oceanul să ne devină prieten. Împreună vom reuși să străbatem această încercare. Vă mulțumesc!
Okay. Uh, thank you, uh, the leadership of the London School of Economics, to John Lethill, who was so uh, efficiently involved in organizing this event. And I'm under the impression of this uh, wonderful uh, lecture on statescraft and on political imagination. I was writing down what was, and by the way, if people think that I've been involved in writing this speech, only very, very marginally, marginally, so it's new to me. So I'm commenting on a new thing, so this is President Barcesco's specialty to come with new things, and it is, I think, quite interesting. I was asked to comment for a very, uh, very brief. So the first thing I'd like to say that I was impressed by the President's references to uh, Gitsa Ionescu's legacy. Uh, in, uh, in 2013, we are going to have probably here a lecture, and I want to thank Mircea Mihaiesh, who is present here, Vice President of the Romanian Cultural Institute, Horia Patapievich, Dorian Brana, for the idea of having lectures in memory of this great, probably the most important Romanian political scientist of the 20th. I can speak loud. Okay, uh, so I think it's a very, very important thing, and I, uh, I applaud this. Uh, the second thing, I listened carefully to President Basescu's speech, and indeed I think the most important thing that uh, emerges from this speech, and from the experience of East Central Europe, including countries of the former Soviet Union, is the transition from the state in which the law was mentioned, but it was trampled underfoot, uh, to the uh, countries that we call rule of law type states from what President Roman Herzog, and he condemned communism in his Germany in his speech in front of the Bundestag called, from Unrechtsstaat, the state of non-law, to the Rechtsstaat, the state, the rule of law. This is precisely the most important challenge. It bears upon everything that defines the political culture of post-communism, and I think that President Basescu in his speech gave a number of very important points about uh, how uh, to address this. One of them is the recognition of the centrality of liberal values and the centrality, if anybody, you know, I teach at the University of Maryland and I tell my students, if you are waked up at five in the morning and you are asked what is the only word you think about when you say socialism, and I say, I don't know, I said, it's equality. What is the first thing that you, if you are waked up, God forbid, at five in the morning and somebody asks you, what is the first word that you think about when you say liberal dem democracy. It's the individual. The liberty of the individual. This is the key issue. Without the individual, we have whatever you have, but you do not have liberal democracy. Okay, this is extremely important, I wanted to emphasize. Uh, listening to President Basescu's speech, so I leave aside my notes here. Listening to President Basescu's speech, I remember probably one of the most, in here we are the London School of Economics and Political Science. One of the most important writings ever in the history of sociology and political science, of course, the two lectures that uh, immediately after World War I, Max Weber delivered. Of course, I'm sure that most of you have read them. One is called Politics as a Calling, Politik as a Beruf. The other one is called Science as a Calling, Wissenschaft as Beruf. Okay, in that particular series of lectures, two lectures, Weber said that there are two types of ethics, two types of morality. One is the morality of the absolute ends. It's the morality, if you want, of the utopian social engineering, in which, in the name of a nebulous, superb goal, all methods are accepted in order to achieve that particular goal. The other one, Weber said, and it's the uh, hallmark of the true political personality, is the ethics of responsibility, in which you accept gradualism, in which you accept the non-perfection of human nature, in which you accept the fact that you deal with individuals as they are and not as a particular ideology wants to transform them into. So this, I think, it's a, uh, it was, this speech was an invitation to political and social and moral responsibility. It is not outside ourselves that the choices are, uh, take place. It is through our own actions through our own intervention in history, through the individual. These are not just nice words. This is the way, basically, modern democratic communities have been built and have been fostered and have been defended. I mean, the fact that there was a war in the 20th century between totalitarianism on the one, so one side, be it black, be it uh, red, be it whatever color you want, 
and the democratic liberal communities, basically it was linked to the definition of the rights of the individual. And one of them is the right to be free in his or her own choices, not to be dictated by some self-appointed group of custodians of human happiness. Gitze Ionescu, whom I happen to be quite close to, and uh, whom I dedicated my own history of Romanian communism to, which is called Stalin's Four Seasons, in 1964, Professor Gitze Ionescu published his History of Romanian Communism. Gitze Ionescu, born in 1913, worked also for a number of years as director of the Romanian Department of Radio Free Europe in Munich. Between 1959 and 1963, he was the director of Radio Free Europe. He believed he was a true European, as is President Basescu, and he emphasized as much as possible the fact that there are a number of values based on which Europe was constructed. Uh, as a matter of fact, and I'll uh, end up with this because I'm very interested in the Q&A part of this, of this event, as a matter of fact, Europe is not simply an economic project. Europe is a civilizational and moral project. If it fails, the European project, it's not simply an economic project that has failed. It's a moral and civilizational project which is basically threatened. And this is something that we all somehow have to be uh, cautious and aware of. This is a struggle during the 21st century between a Europe which would be a liberal democratic model or a Europe that can somehow collapse back into a form of barbarism. The president's references to populism should be, I speak here to the students, I'm a professor, so I'm apologizing that I speak as a professor. The references to populism are extremely important. When you have demonstrations in the heart of Madrid, when you have demonstrations in the heart of Santiago de Chile, in the name not of political parties, of, but other vague ideals and values, then this is the beginning of something that we have to reflect upon and try to understand what they mean. Thank you very much. Thank you to both of you. In my rush with the introduction, I should have mentioned, in fact, that uh, I myself was a student of Gita Ionescu, and I would like to endorse everything that has been said about his contribution to political science, but also the care and attention which he paid to students uh, in his university. So I'm delighted that we are commemorating uh, his memory. We have a number of uh, themes uh, now to pursue in the Q&A and uh, themes clearly of a ph philosophical nature, the role of the state, individual responsibility, but also perhaps uh, some specific policy questions as to how we apply the philosophy uh, on uh, contemporary issues uh, and dilemmas. So we have, I think, about 25 minutes for uh, questions and answers, and this should be uh, plenty of time uh, for you to make your contributions. There are colleagues here with the... Professor, please. with your permission, yes. eventually if the auditors have questions, any type of questions okay. about Romania, I don't like to keep you in a, in a very narrow okay. Uh, area okay. Okay. of questions. Okay. <laughs> That's uh, very generous. So you now have even more uh, freedom. Uh, the president has said that it's a matter of individual responsibility, but hey, you have much more freedom to express uh, your, your views. Um, I think I would like to take a number of questions at a time, if this is uh, yeah. okay. There are colleagues uh, in red with microphones. Uh, we'll need this uh, for various purposes. I should explain that, uh, like all LSE lectures, uh, this is being made into a podcast, and so that's an additional reason why we use the microphones. Uh, could I take the gentleman here first, please? Could you say, could you identify yourself and then ask the question? <coughs> Thank you very much. Uh, my name is John Palmer. Many, many, many years ago, I uh, studied at the school, but in more recent years before I, my retirement, I was political director of the European Policy Center in Brussels. And I wanted to ask the President, if I may, uh, if he could develop his thesis of the choice between liberal free democracy on the one hand with the concerns about 
social solidarity in the face of crisis on the other, and in particular, how and where Romania stands on the debate inside the European Union. Some populists say we should scrap social programs in the European Union, including social programs designed to help the new member states. Uh, others arguing from social solidarity uh, believe they should be strengthened. And I wonder where in Bucharest, uh, and you in particular, Mr. President, where you stand on that debate. Thank you. Uh, could we take the gentleman right at the very back? I can answer. Keith Raffin. Mr. President, uh, how do you respond to what might be described as the prevalent view within the European Union and among its leaders at the moment that Romania was admitted prematurely to the European Union because of inadequate progress in tackling both corruption and organized crime? And does it embarrass you that uh, in our press constantly, again today, there are references uh, to corruption and organized crime in both Romania and Bulgaria, and that it is not being tackled fast enough? And this is now becoming such a dominant theme that, in fact, it may well be regarded as delaying uh, the entry of other applicant nations because it was felt that Romania was admitted, as I say, prematurely uh, without sufficient negotiations and safeguards on the judiciary, on law and order, on organized crime, and on corruption. Please answer to first two questions. Well, the solidarity must be one of the main characteristics of a European society. But the solidarity, if we talk in terms of social protection, must function like a result of a performant and com competitive economy. If we like to build first the solidarity, allocating huge resources for solidarity, but don't having a performant economy for sure, sooner or later, the échec of our policy is guaranteed. And we already have examples in Europe with countries which put in front of any policy the solidarity, a so-called solidarity, which was uh, the engine of borrowing huge amounts of money to support this social uh, protection system, and on the end, the economy don't generate the necessary resources to be solidar as large as we want to be solidar, or as large as the politicians like to declare that they are solidar sometime with entire nation. For example, in Romania, before crisis, 13 millions after, uh, out of 20 millions, were in one or another way assisted in different assistance programs which were guaranteed by the state. Of course, we were obliged to cut this money and to try to focus the existing resources and mainly the resources generated by Romania and not borrowed from outside, uh, we, we were obliged to focus these resources for the categories which really need a support. Why we reach a such large number of assisted peoples in one or another way simply because the politicians, as I said in my speech, each time when the uh, elections were closed, they start to become generous, generous uh, with the uh, money which were not produced by Romania. For this reason, I will conclude my answer saying that no uh, uh, social state 
must be generated by uh, a competitive economy, but a competitive economy can generate a social state. First condition is to have a performant economy, a competitive economy, and you will be able to generate like a result of this competitive economy and a social state. Otherwise, the collapse is guaranteed, in my opinion. Of course, no excuse, no excuse for the governments which don't look at the peoples which cannot provide resources for uh, daily life. For this category of peoples, we have to assume the responsibility of, of uh, providing uh, adequate social protection, but not uh, uh, a generalized protection from generated by political interest, which on the end will push the state in an extremely difficult solution. And uh, with your permission, I will extend a little bit uh, the answer, because I like to transfer to you some information about Romania. Maybe I succeed to change some of your bad impressions about my country. <coughs> For example, uh, in 2010, we were in what we understood from this crisis. The essential thing which we understood is the fact that there are three categories of expenditures which must be controlled. First category is regarding the costs of the state. And we decide to reduce dramatic the cost of Romanian state. We reduced 140, we took out 140 employees of the state. 140,000, excuse me, 140,000 in one year. And the process is continuing. Uh, we reduced the social assistance with 10% and we will continue to look at the categories which really need this social protection. We uh, issue a new wage law which re-adjust uh, the special wages, like for example where different categories with special uh, laws for wages like policemen, like judges, like uh, uh, doctors, like uh, many other categories. And we cancel all old laws, which was generated by political decisions in order to capture the goodwill of some categories, and we reorganize the wage system in Romania. On the pensions, was too a system with special categories. We cut everything, we start from zero, and we arrange the pensions based on the contribution during the life. Uh, another area, labor force code. We change the labor force code, making the relation between employees and the owner of the company in a direct connection until this new labor force code was a, a contract at national level, which was negotiated by the leader of unions with the government, and all the companies were obliged to pay what the politicians negotiate with the unions. Now, based on the new labor force code, each worker has to negotiate with his uh, uh, company with the staff of uh, with the with the staff of the company, or um, that means we try to make each Romanian responsible for his 
life. We try to destroy this story that the state will provide to the Romanians the uh, life of the occidental peoples without of having performances of the workers of the economy from Occident. Here is, uh, uh, in few words, what we succeeded to do last year. I have to admit that we lost huge on the pools, but we put Romania back in track with a consolidated fiscal situation and with the process which is continuing and in 2011 in order to reach our objectives to provide to the Romanians good conditions based on a performant economy and based on a state which is not interfering the life of each one. Of course, were some protests in uh, uh, 2011, but no so strong uh, than to, to block our reforming process. Regarding preparation of Romania for uh, uh, being EU member state. Of course, I don't like to be arrogant. I don't like. In general, I don't like the arrogant peoples. But when we became EU member state, <coughs> I have the feeling that some EU members were more corrupted and more prepared, less prepared than we were to be EU member state. In same time, coming at the Romanian realities, we know very well that we have to push, to continue to push the reform of judiciary system. Last year, we adopted four new codes for justice. The implementation starts with 1st of October this year. We will completely change our ju judiciary system in order to provide reasonable final results on the court. I will not say unfortunately, because we have a cultural tradition, but until 1st of October this year, we are still below Napoleon Code. And uh, <laughs> now we became a little bit more Anglo-Saxon in uh, judiciary system. In same time, is uh, like a man which uh, passed through all functions in uh, administrative system of Romania. I can say that by several times, the excessive bureaucracy was confused with the corruption and is an area where we are working to simplify our bureaucracy. And in another hand, I have to admit that the corruption was an element joining our transition period. Now we fight with all force of state against of this phenomenon. And if you follow Romania, you will see uh, minimum on the newspapers, if you don't know somebody which is involved on the system, you will see that huge progresses was uh, reached in last period, in last two, three years. For example, was unbelievable uh, five years ago to see a politician arrested or condemned. Now members of parliament are condemned, former ministers are condemned, ministers was replaced from the government at the request of prosecutors in order to be judged and so on. Uh, I know we have a lot to do. In same time, I uh, ask you to trust on us because we will do what we have to do. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Too long answer, uh, Professor. Not at all, not at all. Uh, 
Uh, I should also say, of course, that in the UK we've had recent experience of parliamentarians going to jail. But, uh, <laughs> let's not uh, dwell. Let's go upstairs. Uh, the gentleman in the centre, please. No, no, uh, the gentleman behind you, I'm sorry. <laughs> there are several gentlemen. <laughs> okay. I'll pass it on to you afterwards. Um, should I ask the Let question in English or Romanian? Question. Okay. Just say who you are and then ask the question, please. Okay. Um, I'm Mihai and I studied sociology here. I just finished. Um, this is a, a question, I think, more for uh, Professor Tismaniano. Um, thank you both for your speeches and very, very few observations. First of all, Professor Tismaniano, thank you, thank you very much for um, using Weber's uh, two types of ethics. Um, I read that in my sociology course and it was really interesting. And so from my understanding, the first type of ethics um, deals with a system of values. You do an action because your system of values tells you that it's good to do it, and you don't really think about the consequences because you already did good. And the ethics of responsibility asks that when you do something, you think about the potential consequences and try to minimize the problems that might arise. My understanding of that? Okay. So in this context, we need, I, we need the question. Before. Yeah, very quickly. <laughs> I, I wasn't. You, you, you passed your sociology exam, I'm sure. <laughs> I need to get a, a sign a signature on that. <laughs> okay, so in this context, I'm I'm not at all surprised that we're talking about the social welfare state um, in, in these terms. What I'm really surprised about is that a crisis of capitalism, which we've spoken about today has led to the strengthening of capitalism and has led to the possibility of saying that we cut uh, workers' unions, we cut social uh, security as successes. So my question, I reach my, my, my question, what, how much do you think that the decisions to cut social security and uh, unions uh, were influenced by the IMF um, conditions after we took the two loans? Thank you. It's a question for me. No, no, it's a question for you, not for me. Well, you negotiate with IMF. These cuts are not successes, are sacrifices. And in one hand, reflect the situation where a state can come if the populism is uh, working like uh, ideology in a state, when the politicians are not responsible keeping the expenditure in line with the uh, economy uh, performances, with the resources generated by the economy, you will reach for sure the moment when you will be obliged to cut. I repeat, was not presented like a success, was presented like a reality in connection with the populism. That's all. And uh, uh, with IMF or without of IMF, no way. Look at the countries. United Kingdom is not under IMF agreement, as I know. <laughs> and they operate cuts. Thank you. Can we take the lady here, please? Hello. My name is Clara Volintiru. I'm a PhD candidate here at the LSE and a Romanian. And I wanted to ask you about your recent comments on the problem of political clientelism in uh, public institutions and also political parties. You've denounced it, and I wanted to ask you what do you think the sources of it are in the Romanian society? What the, the sources. The, the sources. The causes. Causes. The, the, the causes. Thank you. Are in connection with the mentality. Each party, when came in power, tried to place his peoples in all areas. What we decide and will happen, for example, on the large, we still have large uh, uh, state owned companies in energy sector. What we decide was before the end of the year to privatize the management of these companies. And the, uh, the uh, competition 
for a management team for each company will be organized starting with September, October, November, December. We have to reach, we have to cover all large state companies with the private management. In other area is on the state structures where uh, the governments usually change not only ministers and secretary of state, but they change even the directors in different central institutions. This will be stopped. This year we will have in place is already a kind of agreement on the coalition in power to promote the law fixing the functions which are changed when the government is changed. And uh, the solution, political solution, will be to stop these changes at the level of Secretary of State and uh, Chief of different uh, national agencies. Thank you. Uh, the lady in the center here, please. Thank you. Um, my name is Elena Mega, and I have a question for Mr. President. Um, you talked uh, in your speech about the importance of and the significance of investment in human capital for Romania. Um, and you talked about academics and professors that can promote democracy and make people understand that democracy is the system of citizens and not the system of state. Um, and my question is, what has Romania done in, let's say, the what? what has Romania done in, let's say, the past five years, or what Romania is going to do in the next five years to promote um, the investment in human capital, so to sustain those professors, academics, in uh, being involved in policy making and influence people's mentality, as you said. Thank you. Yeah, out of general approach, let's promote the the young generation which is a slogan used around the world by the politicians. We do something in very practical things. Uh, as you know, the Romanian uh, education system is not the one having uh, the poorest uh, uh, quotation in Europe or on the world. It's a system generating enough uh, uh, good specialists. And Romanian labor force is well known at being a well-trained labor force. <coughs> Even in these conditions, <coughs> we decide to change the education law. Education law was approved in 2010, is an extremely revolutionary law, classifying the, the uh, schools at all levels classifying the teachers, classifying the result of the students. And uh, we consider, and having as main objective, uh, uh, training the youth to have competencies, knowing to do something after each stage of the education. This is the general way how we consider we can create chances for the uh, youth, for the new generation. I don't know if my answer is enough uh, to you, but I consider that we change the education system with the extremely revolutionary law, which will guarantee to our youth a chance in life. We have lots of hands. I wonder. Are we okay for two more questions? Uh, Mr. I accept that's the one, Yes, of course I accept, okay. but is a blonde lady there. Fini Atsvanit in Londra, triambasit. I love your country very much. I'm a huge fan. I have been working there and traveling there for 20 years. But I am very sad to see so many millions of your young and brilliantly educated, uh, talented people leave and come and work overseas. Uh, so many of them, it seems to me, have little intention of returning. 
We talk of why or whether Romania was ready to join the EU. It seems us in the West have benefited hugely from Romania being in the EU. We have your doctors, we have your nurses. But how long can your country sustain this mass exodus? You educate them and they leave. We get the question, thanks. It's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. And uh, I don't know if I will have an equally good answer. But, for example, we fight, we fight as country. Even today I discussed with uh, uh, Prime Minister Cameron about free movement of labor force. Of course, Romania have the disadvantage don't having same wages like in UK. And uh, being in position to promote the idea of free movement of labor force, we cannot say to the doctors which obtain 5,000 pounds per month in London to stay in Romania for 500 euros. I, I, I worry it will just make a me moment. very unpopular okay. Just a moment, because I don't finish. I have in the bad part. <laughs> in my answer. But what is uh, a revolting revolt. What is revolting us? Out of 27 EU countries, nine countries still have restrictions for Romanian and Bulgarian labor force. Okay, we can understand that. But are limited restrictions. Weekly in Romania are organized uh, 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 workshops for recruiting doctors, for recruiting IT peoples, for recruiting engineers, for recruiting architects, exactly for these countries which have restrictions for Romanian labor force, uh, uh, which means something is unfair in this process. If they need our doctor, doctors, why to don't accept our Roma? I, I, I couldn't agree no. with you more. Okay. <laughs> and I visited the Roma that okay. Sarkozy kicked out, and they live in That's desperate fine. Thank poverty. You. Thanks very much. We're not uh, inviting you to give a speech. Um, <laughs> could we? Uh, Invite the gentleman uh, here. Is the last question, please. Thank you. I'm uh, John Glenner from the Department of Government, uh, Mr. President. Uh, on the subject of Roma, uh, they're a community that privileges the individual and the community over the state uh, in a way that is consistent with some of the messages that you've, you've argued for. But they're also, we know, a community that suffers from severe social problems. So do you think that the state has a responsibility to attend to some of the social issues that the Roma community faces? Yes, each state has responsibility for his citizens. And we have to admit that, for example, in Romania officially, uh, we have a half a million Roma. In real terms, we have more than one and a half million. One million are certainly integrated. They don't claim anymore being Roma. At the last uh, cent uh, census, we were surprised to see that in Romania remain only half million Roma. Uh, we have a problem. It's a long story regarding the efforts of the state. And I will not... Uh, uh, blame the communist period when was a period when a part of this Roma were integrated on the society. We continue uh, after revolution, after 89 revolution. We don't succeed. We have responsibility. But in the same time, we cannot accept a treatment for them like for uh, second-hand citizens. We have the responsibility, but in the same time, they became Europeans when we became EU member states. And uh, 
putting them on the plane and sending them in uh, Bucharest is not a solution. For example, in Spain and in Italy, we succeed in one or another way to find a solution at the governmental level. In one hand, we provide these countries with Romanian policemen, in one hand. In another hand, we succeed to reach the agreement sending teachers, which is not the case around the Europe, because why we consider so important to send teachers? Because the main problem of this minority is the education. As mayor of Bucharest, I try to provide them with some jobs. It was quite impossible, out of uh, uh, cleaning activities, because they were with zero school. The most important objective which we have now is convincing the Roma families to send the children to the school. Uh, if we will generate another generation with no school, we'll perpetuate the situation of this remaining unintegrated Roma. But I will add something more. And probably this can be a subject of debate. For example, in Roma family, they are three, four, five, six children. And we introduced in this uh, last year a condition to pay the allowance for the children if they go to school. Otherwise, we cease, we suspend the payments. And seems to be a solution for the time being, they are stimulated to go on the school in order to receive the allocation which is provided by state. But with the ones which circulate around Europe, here, without of a cooperation between uh, home state, between Romania and the visited state, uh, will not succeed. Okay, they are back in Romania, and what we can do, we cannot cut their passports. In next day, they are back. For this reason, we constantly support the idea that we have to develop a strategy at European level. Having only minimal objectives, when they are established around of Roma, for example, or around of Paris, send them a doctor and a teacher for the children. And the rest we will see how we will handle. Thank you. Thank you. Before we finish, I have uh, just one final duty to do, and that is to uh, firstly uh, thank the President for responding to such diverse questions. Uh, I think it's been a very useful discussion, so thank you. We also have one tradition here at the London School of Economics. Uh, we are fortunate in uh, being able to host a number of presidents and prime ministers. Uh, we remember President Clinton's lecture here, President Barroso uh, as well. And on each occasion, uh, we have liked to finish the event with uh, a small gift. And uh, as the president has been emphasizing that uh, the UK economy, like others, needs to make sacrifices, then uh, let me prepare you that the gift is a very modest uh, gift. <laughs> because, of course, you wouldn't expect anything else from an academic institution uh, in the UK. So we have a tradition. And uh, the tradition is that we give you uh, something to remember the London School of Economics uh, by. Now, you're all wondering what on earth am I going to take out of this bag. Uh, but let me suggest one of the most valuable things we could give you from the London School of Economics is precisely the baseball. <laughs> It 
In addition to that, Mr. President, we'd like to uh, give you this, which will commemorate uh, your lecture here at the LSE. And uh, we hope that you will remember your visit uh, with much um, uh, fondness. Uh, let me uh, give you that as a gift as well. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Finally, uh, finally, it is our um, custom on these occasions uh, to please ask you, the audience, to remain in your seats uh, for the moment whilst the President uh, leaves. But once again, can we give a very warm thank you to the President for his lecture. Thank you, thank you very much for accepting me here, and thank you very much for being with me for uh, so long time for you, anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.